Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Nicholas Burns with us, who needs no introduction on the program. David, why don't you bring in Mr. Burns since we spent the entire break talking about how the Red Sox didn't sign Aaron Judge. <laughs> Ruthian. Uh, we were talking about the, the election last week in the UK in an economic context a few minutes ago. Help us understand it in a, in a political uh, one. How does this change the amount of capital that the, the prime minister has? How optimistic are you? How likely is it, do you think, that she's going to uh, be able to hold on to the, uh, to the job? Well, David, Prime Minister Theresa May is significantly weakened by this. This now she she didn't lose the election technically. She, the Conservatives are still in power, probably with a minority party from Northern Ireland, Democratic Union Party. But she didn't exceed. She didn't meet the expectations. Labour won many, many more seats, and so you have to ask: Is she going to be Prime Minister a year from now? Mm. Next week. The United Kingdom begins its Brexit negotiations with the European Union. This is going to be very tough because now all the weight, the leverage has shifted over to the EU. And there's widespread speculation that at some point in the next several months, she could be out of power. Someone like Boris Johnson, the foreign secretary, could be in power. Um, and the country is still very much divided well, by Brexit. We need a clinic right now. Uh, this is a mystery to me through the weekend of a lot of different reading. And I understand the U.K., newspaper cadence is very different from what I see out of America. C.E.J. Dion's wonderful column today in the Washington Post. Boris Johnson is prime minister. How unimaginable is that to the British people? Well, you know, he, it, it, as unimaginable as it was that Donald Trump would be president of the United States for the American people, Boris Johnson is um, unique in British <laughs> politics, to say the least, his personality. But he's experienced, highly intelligent, sophisticated about the world. I think it's not unimaginable that he would be I take prime your minister. point on he's highly intelligent. I get all that. Gordon Brown, off the chart, et cetera, et cetera. Someone like you, M Ambassador, why... Why does he play the part if he plays if he has the cut of cloth to be someone more conservative? Right. It, it, it brings him votes, votes as part of his political identity. Um, but Britain is in, I think, trouble right now because you don't have any kind of unified direction on, on the part of the political class or the politicians as to what they should be doing in these Brexit negotiations. And correspondingly, we were talking um, earlier on Bloomberg if you had said a month and a half ago that France would be stable, mm. that France would be st strengthening, that France and Germany would be reemerging as the twin engines of the EU, Macron won another victory yesterday in the first round of the French 
uh, legislative parliamentary elections. He's set up to win a complete victory next week in the second round. He'll go for pension and labor and tax reform. It'll be difficult, but you can see France in much better shape. And and David, to give you perspective on that, I was in France running up my Amex, and it was really questionable what Macron would do. Those expenses haven't even cleared yet, and Macron's got the big victory. I'm looking for the big victory, too. What does all of that say about party? What we've seen here in the UK, what we're seeing in France as well, of course, he had his victory, and there was uh, interest and enthusiasm about that from from many corners. But there was also uh, a lot of doubt that he would be able to field candidates in every yeah. uh, district and he would be able to assemble anything close to, to a majority. How did that happen and what does that say about parties generally? Well, he's a uniquely gifted politician, much in the way that Barack Obama took America by storm in the 2008 election. He has all the great skills and the charisma to succeed publicly. I think the French are also reacting to the prospect of Marine Le Pen victory, the populist right-wing leader, to the dissolution of the European Union. I think Americans don't fully understand the depth of support among many Europeans for this European project that they began just after the Second World War. And now France strengthening, Germany strengthening. This could be very good news for the EU, in part fueled by insecurity about the United States. For the first time in three generations, there's an American president who does not look upon Europe primarily as a strategic partner. He looks upon Germany as an economic competitor. He had a disastrous visit to Brussels three weeks ago, and I think that is fueling in part this belief in Europe. We've got to get our act together. We have to strengthen the European Union. These are the two countries, France and Germany, to do it. The great tragedy is that their second leading economy, their largest military, will soon be out, Britain. And Britain itself is searching for an identity as it leaves the European Union. Do you think that he thinks that he had a disastrous visit to Brussels, and then how do you, you remedy that? You, you look ahead to the G20 in Hamburg, and we've read all of the reporting about what transpired in the, the, the dinner with leaders following the speech that he gave in, in, in Brussels. If, if we have a leader who's convinced that the way that he spoke, what he addressed in Brussels was better than fine, uh, how, does that, how does that change the, the political geopolitical landscape? Well, here's the, I think here's the problem of the effectiveness and unity of the Trump administration. I think the president probably feels he had a good visit mm-hmm. because he said what he's been saying as a politician for the last two years about the EU. They're freeloaders. They don't pay their dues, et cetera. The White House staff, the cabinet know what a disaster it was. This is our principal defense alliance in the world, NATO. And the core of it is an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. The president's refusal to say those words, although he now said them last Friday, Friday, um, shocked the American political establishment, shocked his own administration because Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis had every reason to believe that those words were in the speech until an hour before he gave it. And, And the fact that Donald Trump, in addition, is not standing up to Russian interference in our election... It's got a lot of people worried about how he views his job of protecting this country. On that note, um, that was a through line throughout James Comey's testimony last uh, Thursday. Essentially, he said, we can't lose sight of the bigger picture here. Yeah. Uh, yes, there's a, there's a debate over two principles in a room and what they said to each other, but there, there is the threat of, of further intervention in elections and other uh, events by uh, the Russians. How do we... How seriously are we taking that, do you think, as as a country? You know, it's interesting. I thought that was the most effective part of Director Comey's testimony when he said with great confidence that they intervened in our election, Russia. They intervened in a massive way. We've got to guard against it. It was a patriotic message, I thought. And you're seeing this week a sanctions bill against Russia 
It will be debated on the Senate floor today, led by, by, by John McCain and others. This is the right response. The Russians are a threat to us. The fact that the president never asked James Comey about the nature of the Russian intervention, never asked him, what do we do about this? All the questions from the president of James Comey were, how does this affect me, Donald Trump? And I think you're seeing a reaction in the Republican Party, Republican leaders standing up to say, we've got to do something to hit back against the Russians through sanctions right. and to prepare ourselves to defend ourselves the uh, next time we have an election. Ambassador, what is your to-do list, to list for the Secretary of State? He is a chief executive officer of a true multinational, one of our great companies, whatever anybody thinks about oil, et cetera, et cetera. What is your prescription for Secretary Tillerson? You know, I think he's got – he needs to – rebind our alliance with NATO and, and, and knit it up again after, after all the uncertainty okay. about Article 5, number one. Number two, uh, there's an assault on Raqqa now by American and Syrian forces. Mm -hmm. There's an assault on Mosul. This is a big movement to, to, move the, to force the uh, Islamic State out of both Syria and Iraq, and he's the one who has to keep that coalition together. And you see him trying to do that in settling and diminishing the tensions between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. He also has to balance the fact that we're a partner with China economically in some respects, but we're a competitor, and the Chinese are running amok in the South China Sea. This is a tough job. I hope that okay. Secretary Tillerson can be successful. He's traveling more. He's got to be happy with that. Yeah, but come yeah, on. Isn't yeah. the toughest job he's got to go have a cup of coffee at the White House? The toughest problem is that he is not being backed up by the president of the yeah, United States at key moments. That's the toughest part of his job. Great to speak with you. Thank you very much for Thanks, coming. Dave. Thanks, Ambassador Tom. Nicholas Burns, a professor yeah. of the practice at the Come Kennedy back School when of the Yankees lose. <laughs> <laughs> I surely will. Always <laughs> <laughs> oh, great Nicholas, to get his perspective here. Yes. David, it was extraordinary. I, I actually watched the entire Saturday game just by chance. I, I haven't done it in years. I actually watched it like a fan at the park, except I watched on the famous TV. Yeah. And it's just it's just fun. You you can be the greatest Yankee hater of all time. That would be me. And they're just glorious to watch. I imagine you were up late last night as well, watching no. a little hockey. No. no, it's no foregone. I I have trouble with the modern game. It's great. It's exciting. <laughs> I'm glad they play. I just make the goal I feel bigger. Like you got to write a column, maybe you know? a little Bloomberg View column on the modern. No, game. I just I'm all judge. I've got my 99 jersey on underneath my white shirt here. My That's true. I can verify Aaron that. Judge Radio sure. listeners. Worldwide, this is Bloomberg. Robert Cinch, who's good to have on because he's been so right about Sterling. It was weak. He said, get long. He was right. A while back, he said, get short. Here we are. 126.68. Bob, I need to make some money off the weekend. I lost a lot of money betting against the Yankees. Uh, what do I do with Sterling? You know, I think there's still some downside for Sterling. Um, in the short run, I think we're probably in a 125, 130 trading range, but we're moving to the lower end of that range, as you suggested. And uh, I think the next leg will have to be a stronger dollar, and we do think we're going to get that as the year progresses, as uh, as markets are probably underestimating uh, what the Fed's going to do by year end. Where do you stand on this whole argument about Brexit? A lot of people who were proponents of it say, uh, look, we had it, and the economy hasn't suffered that dramatically. Sterling, sterling aside, there are those who are against it who are worried about what's going to happen here as we inch closer to uh, June the 19th, and, and still closer still to, to that deadline two years from now. Uh, are you sympathetic to that argument? 
You know, I think that, that this is one that's um, getting a little beaten to death. Yeah. Um, uh, excessive uh, focus on something that goes into effect two years from now. Um, but certainly it, 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 it keeps the dialogue going. Look, this is a, a long um, probably arduous negotiation. Um, when when we when we reach the conclusion, my view continues to be that the Europeans have as much to lose as the Brits do in this Brexit process. If you look at uh, eurozone exports, um, the U.S. and and the U.K. are right up there at the top, uh, almost equal in terms of the the amount of exports from the uh, from the EU. So they don't really want to see a hard Brexit and a lack of uh, trade going forward. So I think the rhetoric will be tough, but these are negotiations. They'll be long negotiations. Um, and I don't think we're going to learn very much over the next month, three months, six months, except the fact that that uh, the Prime Minister may kind of overstepped, overreached. And uh, I think this, this moves us towards um, you know, sort of more, more balanced negotiations going forward. We're in a 6% dollar bear market off the Bloomberg dollar index. That's since the beginning of the year. We're in a 4%, 4.7% dollar bear market going back to the beginning of the year prior. There's a theme here, Bob Singe. What will turn dollar around? Is it just simply underestimating Janet Yellen rate increases? Yeah, I think that's a significant part of it. I also think that, you know, we came into this year with the market very bulled up on the dollar. And we had long positions in the dollar against a whole variety of currencies based on expectations of what the Fed would do this year. Um, and, of course, uh, markets tend to sense out those, those positions that are most extreme. And certainly if you look at some of the hedge fund returns this year, they would suggest that, in fact, a lot of funds got this dollar uh, position wrong. However, we've now, against a number of currencies, shifted the opposite way, and we're seeing mm-hmm. very large long positions in the uh, in the euro reported by the CFTC. Uh, I would also note uh, big long positions now in the Mexican peso of all currencies. So, right. I think what we had was excessive long positions. The economy gave us another soft first quarter. Um, uncertainties have developed about what the Fed's going to do after this June meeting. And so we've unwound a lot of those positions, and that, that has brought the dollar lower. Yeah. I think from, this, from these levels, we now have the market pretty negative on the dollar, positioning built up short the dollar. And I think, you know, another Fed rate hike by the end of the year, without much action in the rest of the world, I think we're going right. to see the dollar higher. Uh, David, I'd note that Robert Sinch is driving sterling lower, 126.64, <laughs> getting right near the weakness of June 9th, Friday. Uh, we'll come back with Bob since you're in just a moment to talk a bit about uh, dollar Mexico. Let me ask you quickly before we go to break here, though, Bob, about uh, the yen in light of the BOJ meeting later uh, this week. We've got the Fed first on the 13th, 14th, and then the BOJ meeting on the 15th, uh, 16th. Are, are you expecting any sort of surprise out of, out of that meeting this week? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think the, the, the only surprise you might see out of the BOJ is them beginning to admit that, that this quantitative easing thing um, it just can't continue forever. Um, but I don't think the, the, the yen is going to allow them that flexibility right now. I think they'd like to back away a little bit uh, from continuing to add to their balance sheet and liquidity. But unfortunately, uh, with the yen strengthening, it's not a good time to do that. Robert Sinch with us of Amherst Pierpont. Too many things to speak about uh, with Bob Sinch. Bob, what is the decision tree for Chair Yellen 
at the press conference to indicate what she's going to do in the future. Is she going to say, well, there's slack in the economy, which was three years ago, or is it looking for Vice Chairman Fisher's ultra-accommodative shift? What's what's going to be the buzz, if you will, that she's going to frame at the press conference to describe the next year? Well, I think the the biggest difficulty she faces is reconciling the labor market data, which the Fed even admits, even even the most dovish members of the board now admit the labor market is probably operating at uh, at, at full employment with still soft wages, and now this recent weakening of the inflation rate, which really kind of upsets, I think, the Fed's plan about where they're headed. Um, We've had some some funky numbers in a couple of categories in the technology area that have kind of messed up the the readings uh, that all of a sudden popped up out of nowhere. But I think that's the... That's the, the, the issues that, uh, that Mike McKee is going to bring up to her is, is how do you reconcile the reported inflation and wage numbers with this very strong uh, growth in employment? Now, I think the, the way to reconcile it is the growth in employment has been, for the most part, in some, some lower-wage industries. And so the way our, our wage data works, it's a, it's a weighted average of who's working in what jobs and what they get paid. And I think that's been biasing down a little bit um, wage pressures. But nonetheless, um, the inflation numbers themselves really create a difficult environment for the Fed. And I think she'll fall back on normalization. We need to normalize policy. Something that, that Steve Stanley and I have been talking about a long, a long time ago is that with this kind of labor market and this kind of growth in the economy, why should the Fed fund, the real Fed funds rate still be negative? And I think that's, uh, that's kind of the thought process as to why they want to bring the real Fed funds rate to neutral which I think probably gets them to to somewhere around one and a half percent. At this point, what stands in the way of of her doing that? What could derail that uh, that plan? Inflation, inflation, inflation. You know, I mean, I think there's sort of there are two schools of thought in thinking about what the Fed needs to do. Um, there's the school that I belong to, uh, which is we need to normalize policy. As I said, bring the real Fed funds rate back to neutral, and you know, I'd, I'd say that. One would have to argue that whatever measure of inflation you're looking at, it's at least one and a half percent. And those who are arguing, why do you hike rates? Why do you tighten policy when inflation is so low and, and not showing signs of acceleration? And, and one of them is an argument based on sort of the rate of change. What do we need to do to change policy because of inflation? And the other one is to say, let's get policy back to a normalized level after this 10 years of crisis. And that does require having a different level of the Fed funds rate. So it's kind of a rate of change argument versus a level argument. Let's talk a bit about uh, dollar Mexico here. You've written about that in a, in a recent note, Bob, and I'm, I'm looking at it here. And we're, we're at levels we haven't been at since the, the election. Uh, what, what accounts for that? How worried are you here about um, where, where dollar Mexico might be headed? Boy, you talk about round trips yeah. uh, post-election and, and, and recently. Um, that is one of the biggest round trips. Mexico was in the, in the Bloomberg rankings of extended major currencies, 31 currencies. The Mexican peso was ranked 30th out of 31st in the second mm-hmm. half of last year and first year-to-date this year, complete round trip. Um, look, I think it's a, it's, it's a microcosm of the dollar story in general. Uh, we, we had a very large uh, short position in the peso, long position in the dollar versus the peso at the end of the year. 
After all, you're going to have Fed tightening. That's probably bad for the peso. You're going to have a border wall. You're going to have renegotiation of NAFTA. A lot of reasons for the market to be very negative to peso. We've heard a lot less rhetoric about things like the wall and disagreements about NAFTA. Obviously, a big adjustment in uh, in expectations or some adjustment in expectations about what the Fed will do. And those big short positions in the peso have gotten squeezed. What's kind of amazing to me now is we've gone to the opposite extreme. We have a multi-year high in the long positions in the in the peso and in the speculative community, at least according to the CFTC. We have oil prices lower, which would normally be a negative for the peso. We have interest rate spreads. You look at five-year interest rate differential between the U.S. and Mexico, and the Mexican advantage has started to come down in the last couple of weeks. So. I think the market's gotten very complacent about dollar max. As I said, it's been the best performing currency. A lot of folks have probably lost a lot of money being short the peso this year. Um, but right when the market gives up on a position like that, that's when I think it's time to go the other direction. And I think, uh, I think as we look out over the next three months, uh, my favorite mm-hmm. long dollar position now has shifted from pound at these levels. Uh, I still like the dollar versus the pound, but I think our favorite position would now be long the dollar versus the Mexican peso. I, I, I look, Bob, at this, and I guess i got to go back to Sterling with the news flow we've got now. What does Prime Minister Johnson mean for Sterling? Can you hazard to guess that, or is that just so arbitrary and irresponsible I shouldn't even ask the question? No, I mean, I think that... that Look, uh, you know, Boris Johnson has had a a pretty um, significant rebound in terms of his political fortunes over the last six to nine months. And you look around the world, particularly places close to us around the world, he doesn't seem that extreme anymore. So, um, you know, I think that's a uh, that's a that's a potential outcome. It would tilt the U.K. back toward uh, more of a of a harder line on the whole Brexit process. Um, you know, I, fi- I find this very interesting. Who would have thought two weeks ago we'd be sitting here saying, or three weeks ago, oh, we're going to have political certainty in France with a, with a party that right. didn't even exist 18 months ago, and we're going to have political uncertainty in the U.K. I mean, it just tells you how, how uh, volatile these, mar- mm. these, uh, these political environments are. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of good news for France, I hope, going forward. Yeah. Bob Sims, thank you so much with Amherst Pierpont this morning as we walk through that linkage of the litmus paper, the global system, the foreign exchange market into yields, yields higher, risk on. Curve is really not steepened all that much. Yeah, it has, but it's just just a teens weens. That's CFA, the level four, David. <laughs> but the two-year yield, 1.35%. I dutifully trotted out the lollipop chart. Oh, boy. And I was surprised. I hadn't looked at it in a while, David. Yeah. Since like five weeks ago. And I, can't, I can't pull that up on the machine. I'll have to come around. That's a secret. You have to come around. <laughs> give it out to select yes. people. But anyways, the, the lollipop chart shows higher yields. And 1.3470 on the two-year is June is busting out all over. And you go on to the other means. One of the, one of the let's, let's move forward. We do that on Bloomberg. June 14, uh, yeah. July 26. September 20. That's a long distance from July 26 to September 20. So in that, from June 14, there's three jobs reports before September 20th. Three. So that's pretty cool. 
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. It was April 15th, 1892. The year Tom graduated from high school. Mr. Edison and a host of others established a company called General Electric. With the modest exception of one Nick Heyman, Jeffrey T. Sprague has followed GE for most of those 125 uh, years. He's a legend in industrial research on Wall Street with his vertical research partners. We welcome the tank commander, Jeff Sprague. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Thank you very much. What happened with Mr. Immel? Did he just simply overstay his welcome? Yeah, Tom, I think the, the short answer here is, um, you know, there was a lot of trials and tribulations with uh, capital deployment and all that just left a, you know, a positive mark on the company in many ways. Obviously, the stock has, you know, lagged very substantially uh, over his tenure. And I think the pressure finally built and the, and the board yeah. decided it was time to make a change. I did the recovery from 09 as part of the email tough times chair what a great recovery what's happened in the last 12 to 18 months why the almost bear market in ge shares well tom there's been this increasing focus and i think rightly so on on ge's cash flow over the last uh, 18 months or so so we we got that very big bounce in the stock in 2015 when uh when tryon got involved and that yeah. uh, you know that uh, sparked a lot of investor interest but the actual, uh, you know, uh, operating results have struggled somewhat over that time frame. And we've had this increasing disconnect between the cash flow and the earnings. And I think uh, investors rightly have focused more on the cash flow metrics in terms of a, a proper valuation approach. David Gurr from three years ago, $21 billion free cash, $13 billion free cash. And then down to the recent challenges and acquisitions of actually negative free cash flow, modeling back to only $11 billion for fiscal year 17, that off the Bloomberg. Je- uh, David? Jeff, help us look ahead here uh, at what you think this this company is going to do. Obviously, there'll be new leadership in place. We've seen GE spin off its, uh, its finance unit. Do you think we're going to see more spinoffs going forward? Well, it's a really interesting question, David, because if you look at uh, John Flannery's background, although he's had some uh, very successful operating uh, experience recently in GE Healthcare, he also has a business development background and spent a lot of time in GE Capital, which always in, involves buying and selling things. So I think that does kind of spark the the question or the debate about will he do something more dramatic. Uh, clearly, he'll want to put his mark on the company. The one thing I would note that currently, you know, my sum of the parts value on the company is about $24. So that makes it a little tricky to do wholesale dismantlement because you kind of lay bare that valuation disconnect. And that that $24 would be before we think about any dis-synergy from corporate or tax or other things as, you know, you take apart a company like this. If you, as, as you've watched him, this all play out with, uh, with the activist investors, with Nelson Peltz of Tryon uh, Partners, how well has he handled that, that pressure? What, what lessons are to be learned by the way that uh, that's been navigated? Uh, you're asking a question from, uh, from a Jeff Immelt standpoint? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I think he, you know, he addressed it pretty straight on. Uh, I, I think they they showed kind of a, you know, an open attitude towards it. You know, they didn't uh, 
they didn't dig in and, and fight, you know. So I think there was an acknowledgement that uh, Tryon brought some good ideas to the table and they were willing to kind of think about what they were saying and, and, and work with them to some degree. So from that standpoint, you know, I, I think they handled it the right way. I would just say, though, you know, yeah. just the gravitational pull of the valuation, though, is just kind of worked against yeah. the company. The back of the envelope uh, uh, skill set here is to look at the margin down the income statement. You mentioned cash flow earlier. Maybe it's EBITDA earnings before interest taxes and the other stuff I didn't pass on the CFA. <laughs> but, 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 Jeff, there's a compare and contrast here to UTX and to Honeywell. And GE's nowhere near that, even at 16%, 16 cents on the dollar down to EBITDA. UTX and Honeywell are generating a lot more. Is that easily fixable? I don't think it's easily fixable, Tom. Some of it is, you know, is uh, the difference in the business. Agreed. Um, and um, so, the, you know, you don't fix that overnight. And one thing that I would say, though, is that if you look at GE's cash flow, uh, cash flow margin, so free cash flow as a percentage of sales, it's actually very similar to UTX and companies like ABB and Siemens, who would be their, their close peers. So one of the conundrums that I think Mr. Flannery has is that GE's cash flow is not poor per se. It's actually that uh, the earnings construct that is a quote-unquote operating construct and excludes a few things uh, has created this large disconnect between what the cash flow is and what the EPS is. You okay over there, David? I'm good, yeah. Is this too much CSA talk? That's a lot of- We're never having Jeff Sprague on again. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much. Great, Really honored to have Jeff Sprague on uh, with us with Vertical Research uh, uh, this morning. He's truly a legend on Wall Street. I first met Jeff Sprague, uh, David Gurrow, with his writings. Well, you meet analysts when they write because writing's what matters. And he wrote these brilliant short essays for Bear Stearns. This is a million years uh-huh. ago. And it, and it, it was sensitivity analysis and, you know, all this, this typical stuff of industrials about what not to do. That was not a rigging endorsement. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't you know, you got, we don't do buy, hold, sell here, folks. That's but true. Yeah. we've given you a number of opinions this morning, <clears throat> uh, particularly Karen Earlhart from Bloomberg Intelligence, who on very short notice joins us yeah. as well. Great to hear from Jeff Fagan. We'll get Nicholas Heyman on, among others, here in the coming days. I'm Mr. Uh, Mr. Flannery's new General Electric. This is what Bloomberg Surveillance is all about, folks. We have honored to bring you our coverage this morning of General Electric, and we finished strong calling us from O'Hare. Nicholas Heyman uh, with William Blair. Nick, thank you so much for joining us uh, as you wait for uh, the plane. Uh, Nick, it is the changing of a guard. Is it a generational change at GE? There's that new broom syndrome. Will Mr. Flannery move a lot of people in and out? Um, no, I don't expect a whole lot of change at all, Tom. Actually, I would say at this juncture, you're more likely to see a lot of the changes that um, have really, you know, been structurally put in place since maybe April team right. when they announced the Ultimate Energy. These are all going to culminate. And um, now, if you do have, as you saw in the first quarter, with the exception of free cash flow, much stronger fundamental performance, we think the free cash and the cash from operations will be much better. Uh, from the second quarter on out. And if that's the case, you actually have now a new CEO who's a pragmatic leader and who in turn gives an opportunity for that 
enhanced fundamental performance right. to actually benefit the share price. Under Jeff, who's a you know very strong leader, but was a very tended to be a big optimist. Okay, uh, coming from sales and marketing background, um, that aspirational nature uh, had basically uh, worn thin. I guess would be the best way to say yep. with a lot of the institutional investment community, and in turn, the traction from the improvement of all these changes to exit largely most the majority of the financial services, and then to really supersize your power right, business, but, and now your oil and gas, you now have a chance for this right. to finally you know, actually all, all the improvements in the, in the fundamentals to actually now benefit the share price. Many would agree with you, and you see it from the share price from 10 to 30 off of the 09 bottom. Brian Moynihan, among others, Mr. Corbett at Citigroup, would kill for Jeff Immelt performance off the bottom. You and I talked 24 months ago about Jeff Immelt arguably being CEO of the year in the way he had to reinvent his generous electric. Why is he being shown the door now? I mean, I get Flannery. Maybe it's a generational change in that. But what exactly did Jeff Immelt do wrong? I don't think it was so much wrong per se. But when, you know, in late 15, he laid out a vision for $2 in earnings yeah. by the end of 18. Okay. Um, the guy, the stepping stone to get there was $1.60, this year. People are comfortable that that range could be hit. Um, I think it may be at the upper end of that range. We'll see. But I think the biggest and you know, hardest part was for investors to understand how you could go, say, from $1.65 to $2 without any external benefit of tax reform, of U.S. infrastructure modernization, or any of the other initiatives that were, at, you know, one time widely expected to occur under the Trump administration this year. Jeffrey Immelt sat down with uh, John Micklethwaite, our editor-in-chief, a couple of months ago. I think it was back in February in Boston, and uh, he asked uh, Mr. Immelt how he's changed the company. He said, uh, it's more global. It's more focused on the customer. Uh, When I became CEO, he said we were 70% inside the United States. Now we're 70% outside the United States. Uh, As we begin to, to look at his legacy at GE, is that the biggest part of it? That's one of them. You know, the second will be that he's certainly at the very leading edge of figuring out how to convert GE into the digital organization that can create value um, from from information, analytical insights, and, um, you know, continue to push with those analytical insights to a company that's uh, mass customization in terms of what they produce, um, you know, with additive metal manufacturing. So there's a lot of transformational nature of how you build things, but you're moving beyond the base product beyond the long-term service agreements and even beyond the software to now, you know, add as a fourth leg to create value for customers' information. Nicholas Heyman with us uh, with William Blair. Thrilled to have him on after talking to a number of other GE types uh, this morning. Nick Heyman, how do they put 300 basis points on the EBITDA margin? You come down the income statement. I believe they're underperforming UTX, underperforming Honeywell, and on and on and on. How do they strap on a better EBITDA margin? Well, you know, you're certainly taking these structural costs out, right? A billion this year and a billion next year to get down to $22.3 billion in total structural costs. I think what, you know, we were just out recently to see Bill Rue, uh, who runs GE Digital. And um, I would honestly tell you in our framework uh, that there was the expectation that after investing aggressively to build out the partners for the Predix Alliance, as well as um, several uh, major M&A acquisitions, 
and train about 30,000 independent software programmers. That 17 and 18 were supposed to be the breakaway years for GE Digital to contribute incremental sales and earnings growth to GE. And clearly, in my mind, that will occur in 18 and on, not 17. So, you know, um, I think I think as you look forward, the things that are really going to be internally uh, catalyst, capable catalysts for GE will be the ability of GE Digital to move from conceptual productivity internal enhancer to actual strong third-party sales. And I think the second thing will be a pretty pretty timely transformational merger uh, of GE Oil & Gas with Baker Hughes. Mm-hmm. You take and move oil and gas from 10% of GE to 20%, and instead of 30% North American upstream that's growing 30 or 40%, it's now 60 So in the second half of this year, you're going to suddenly see uh, really a drag race or mm-hmm. acceleration in the performance of what is now going to be 20% of the company. It's amazing. You see, so, you see the difference there, David Gura, in Nick Heyman's tone versus what we've heard earlier, his optimism. David, jump in with one yeah, more. Yeah, Nick, I think it was last month uh, uh, Jeff Immelt was saying that, gee, he has as much as $12 billion in unallocated capital uh, ostensibly to use yes. for, for acquisitions. Do, do you expect that to be deployed here under Mr. Mr. Flannery, or is there going to be a more wait-and-see approach here uh, with this leadership changeover? I think that, um, you know, if anything... Uh, you have a couple more divestitures coming here, the consumer lighting business, industrial solutions will be closed out at the end of this year, imminently your water. Um, you may take a look at the uh, you know, medical portfolio. We just had Siemens, who I saw uh, four weeks ago, get up and have their kind of webcast debutante party for their <laughs> health veneers. And that uh, is, you know, they're going to merge that. They're going to IPO it. They're going to spin it out. And so much like they did with lighting, okay, Ostrom, a little ahead of GE's decision to, uh, to, to, to exit the lighting. So I think that there will be uh, an evaluation of perhaps parts of the healthcare portfolio. Having, you know, John's background in M&A and strategic planning prior to uh, Ryan right. GE Healthcare, he's as good a hand <clears throat> at that as any. And that portfolio of GE's is actually much more valuable than the one right. in health veneers at Siemens because they have gone so much further into biopharma. And that's really where the growth and the returns are going forward. The other businesses are performing well, but they don't hold the same, you know, um, future, you know, growth potential. Uh, Nick Heyman, one final question. Buy, hold, sell. Please frame frame where you are on buy, hold, sell with GE. We are, uh, you know, outperform. And um, we... uh, we believe amongst the large cap stocks that we, industrial stocks that we follow in the multi-industry sector, this is hands down the mm-hmm. number one. It's trailed, and yet it's fundamentals X, you know, um, the cash flow that have really started to rebound. We've seen tremendous orders here from Vietnam and from Saudi Arabia in the last couple of weeks. We don't think that there's any fundamental hiccup or even shortfall, as many have alluded to, with regards to the dividend being able to be paid and sustained. But in fact, what we do see is we now see an ability to take and convert what should be a lot stronger uh, cash from operating activities over the next three quarters, second, third quarter, mm-hmm. and the next year to be con- you know to be aligned with um, you know um, much much better yeah. st- this year price. This year price should be mid thirties. Yeah. You know, if you're all all even with everybody else, just moving along with everybody right. else, and. It hasn't been. And, and the message is battle cry has been we're going to cut the dividend. And the math isn't even remotely there. 
Okay. okay. You wouldn't be buying back okay. 11 or $13 billion stock. Nick, so, it's, you know, I, I think it's all going to come out in the uh, wash, okay? Nick, thank you, thank you. You're a trooper with William Blair from O'Hare International Airport today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.